Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Slinsky, aka the Running Wine Mom. Today, we have a truly enchanting guest joining us. Please grab a glass of your favorite wine and settle in as we dive into the extraordinary world of Shelby Van Pelt, the brilliant mind behind the mesmerizing novel, Remarkably Bright Creatures. Remarkably Bright Creatures has, been, has garnered widespread acclaim for its lyrical prose throughout thought-provoking themes and the way it effortlessly blurs the boundaries between reality and fiction. In this spellbounding tale, Van Pelt takes us on a journey alongside the protagonist as she embarks on a transformative exploration of human-animal connections and the power of Van Pelt paints a vivid tapestry of, of a world where the lines between species become beautifully intertwined, where an octopus becomes not just a creature of the sea, but an eloquent voice within the narrative. Through evocative descriptions and atmospheric writing, Van Pelt invites readers to ponder the intricate wonders of the natural world and their place within it. Today, we have the pleasure of diving deeper into the depths of remarkably bright creatures with the author herself. Shelby joins us to share her insights into the inspiration behind the novel, her creative process, and the messages she hopes readers will take away from this remarkable work of fiction. We'll explore the themes of connection, communication, and the delicate balance between humanity and the nature that permeates the pages of this thought-provoking novel. We'll also discuss her journey as a writer and the importance of literature in raising awareness about environmental issues. So grab another sip of your favorite wine and prepare to be captivated as we embark on a literary voyage with the brilliant Shelby Van Pelt. Get ready to immerse yourself in the world of remarkably bright creatures. Welcome, Shelby. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I am so excited when I reached out um, that you agreed to do this because I listened to the audio of Remarkably Bright Creatures. And when it was recommended, as we were just kind of talking about on the Peloton's mom group, I was like, this is not any book that I would like pick off a shelf. Although I would because the cover is so beautifully um, bright and just enchanting, I guess. (laughs) And I just fell in love with the characters and the whole book itself. So I'm so excited to talk about it in this episode. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And the audiobook in particular has just been killing it. Um, the, the, the folks that narrated that are, are really, I, I was, I was surprised when they agreed to narrate my book being that it was a debut novel about kind of a weird topic, like an octopus. Um, but yeah, Marin Ireland uh, is a, is a superstar in the audiobook world. And Michael Yuri is, I feel like his star is really rising. Um, yeah. I'm very lucky to, that I got him when I did. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like every time Marcellus would talk, I would be like, oh, it's so like calming, but also like, you wanted to hear what this octopus had to say, but <laughs> we will get into that. Um, before we do, to start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine or drink, vent about something that has been bothering us and celebrate our recent victory. So grab a glass, take a breath, and let's get started. What is your wine, W-I-N-E, of the week? Well, um, so I, I'm at a lake house right now. And so we've been doing a lot of, um, like, kind of day drinking, outdoor drinking. And I was trying to think of what the name of this wine is, but I think it's just called House Wine. It comes in a can. Ooh, uh, it has uh, sparkling varieties. Um, there's a sparkling rosé that's fantastic. And that has been my my fridge stalker this week um because it's just so nice to be able to not have to deal with a big heavy glass bottle and um you know i think aluminum cans are a little bit more environmentally friendly too so i don't feel bad about the volume of wine that we're going through it's a little less embarrassing from a recycling front 
Um, but it, it's a good, I mean, it's like five bucks a can. It's not anything fancy, but I'm really enjoying that this week. Yeah, I love, I had actually my first wine in a can a couple weeks ago. Um, it was a, a rosé from a small vineyard in Texas. And I was shocked at how good it was. Um, and I definitely feel like for the summer, I, I know everybody loves the seltzers and I'm like fine with them, but they're not my favorite. So I'm like, maybe I'll do the the wine. <laughs> oh, I know. I can only have so many white claws. It's a lot of carbonation. <laughs> uh-huh. So what is your W-H-I-N-E of the week? Uh, like I mentioned, I am at a really beautiful place right now. And I was really trying to struggle to think of something to whine about. I mean, there's a lot of things about the state of the world that I could rant about. But um, in in terms of my life personally, I'm just going to go with with the geese and their poop. Um, That is a whine. (laughs) Um, How about your win? Being at the lake house probably is a part of your win. Yeah, I mean, life life is a win right now. Um, we also had a, a, another pretty big win a few days ago. Um, Remarkably Bright Creatures is back on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. So uh, it's been kind of popping on and off lately. It went off for a couple weeks and now it's back on. So that's always a win. That's so exciting. Congratulations. That must be such Thank a you. good vibe to um, <laughs> have that. Um, okay. Another and reason also- why I'm buying the cans of wine in bulk, because we have yeah. to have a, a sparkling wine toast every time we get that kind of news. <laughs> you have to celebrate that every time. No excuse. Um, I always like to ask my guests, what are three struggles you have overcome to lead you to where you are now? And what are three things that you are most proud of in your life? Well, I mean, in, in terms of becoming um, an author, I think definitely my number one struggle in the past and in the present is is the imposter syndrome. And I know that all writers pretty much deal with that in some form, but there, there's days when it really gets me where I just feel like, what did I do to to deserve this, to to be here when when so many other more talented people are, are struggling to get there? Um, and I think I must have read my own book at least a dozen times in the editing process. And there were definitely iterations of reading it where I was convinced it was absolute garbage. (laughs) When you say a word too many times and it starts to sound funny, I mean, that happens with writing too. So I think overcoming that is definitely something that I've struggled with and continue to struggle with. Um, I I struggled a lot with early parenthood, which also sort of lines up with when I was really trying to, to get this manuscript written and get it done. Uh, which also lines up with COVID. So I guess that's my one, two, three right there. Um, there you go. <laughs> the entire year of 2020, we'll just put that down as that was uh, a challenge that we all overcame, obviously. Um, three things that I'm proud of. I'm proud of this book. Um, I When I started out trying to write a novel, I never would have dreamed that I would be sitting here with a finished book in my hands, much less one that has been published and actually read by kind of a lot of people. So um, I'm still pinching myself every every day over that one. It doesn't seem real a lot of days. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of, of my family. And um, I don't want to take credit for my kids because they are their own people. But, um, you know, I think we're, we're doing okay raising them, again, through some of this very difficult time of being a parent through the pandemic and coming out of it. Um, you know, there, there are days that I'm not proud of throughout all of that, but um, 
But I think there are more days that I am proud of and looking back on it, I'm like, okay, we handled that, you know, and, and they came out of it okay and they're good people. What else am I am I proud of? It's hard it's hard to say things that you're proud of about your own self. <laughs> That's why I always like asking and it's funny so many people, especially women, have trouble like thinking about it. It's like there's you know, there's there's so much that you're doing just in what you've said. I will say I think I'm proud of of being able to sit here and do this, not, and that's separate from, from the book itself, having that published. I remember early on before the book came out, having to do a zoom with some librarians. It was like my first publicity event and it couldn't have been a friendlier group of people. I mean, librarians are book lovers. They are awesome. They're not going to be mean and scary in this interview, but I was shaking. I was so terrified. Um, and again, this is like you know, mid pandemic, um, having not done any kind of public speaking or really public facing anything uh, in a while. Uh, it was it was scary to think about about doing public speaking. And now I will go to book events and sometimes speak to four or five hundred people. And I think me of of that era where I was talking to those librarians on Zoom wouldn't have believed that I could do that. And so I'm proud that I have taught myself to do that. Yeah, that's so awesome. So my parents, when we were younger, uh, we were involved in our church and um, my parents were like, you have to do one thing in church. It doesn't matter what it is. And so mine was to be a reader on Sundays sometimes. And I swear that's where my public speaking came in because I was literally in fourth grade talking to all of these old, older people. And, um, because with public speaking, so many people have problems with it. Rightfully so. It's scary to do it. I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of like talking. I, most of the time, I don't think people are paying attention to me anyway. So I might as <laughs> well just talk. But yeah. I'm proud of you for that. I quite like it now, too. But it's it's a totally different skill set from writing a book. So right. I think a lot of yeah. authors don't realize that going into it, that you're going to have to develop this whole other um, part of yourself when you go to promote your book. Yes. Well, I'm so happy that you are um, past, well, past it, sort of. <laughs> All right. So running wine, mom, we talked about the wine. Now we're on to the fitness. What is your favorite way to stay active? Well, there's the Peloton. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just, I was kind of a late adopter of the Peloton. We didn't, we didn't get on board with that until... Gosh, I think it was like 2021 um, okay. after watching all of my friends in 2020 buy them and then being the only one on the group text who did not know what they were talking about when they were talking about like Cody's class or whatever. So um, I kind of was skeptical about it at first, but I'm, I'm a total diehard now. Um, it's definitely my, my go-to fitness uh, routine maker. Uh, I used to be a big, big, big runner. Um, I ran cross country and track in high school and college. And after college, I got into distance running. I think I've done 13 or 14 marathons, um, but I don't, I can't do that anymore. Um, even if my body would tolerate it, I just can't imagine taking four hours out of my Sunday morning to go run 20 miles. <laughs> just yeah, sounds, I but I will, I mean, I do go out and I'll run like three or four miles at, at what, what, used to be a very slow pace and is now kind of my baseline. <laughs> that's, that's all right. I did, um, the New York, I did the New York city marathon twice and that's 
it. And after my last one, I think it was in like 2017, I was like, I have no desire to run more than like five miles at a time. I used to do a lot of like half marathons and 10 milers. And since the last marathon I did, I think the most I've done is like five miles. <laughs> yeah. No, five miles is would be great for me. I um my last marathon was ten years ago, almost exactly. Wow. Um was before my was right before I got pregnant with my daughter. Uh it was the Boston Marathon and it was twenty thirteen, which was the bombing year. So yeah, I was gonna say like that is okay. That's surprising. Yeah, which is a whole other story that we don't have to get into because oh it was a gosh. wild day. Um but yeah, I always kind of have in the back of my head like I would love for that not to be my marathon story, but not to be my last memory of doing this thing that I loved for so many yeah. years. But um, then I think that that would require those four row training runs. And <laughs> so can I ask you, where were you at in the run time when that happened? Like, yeah, um, I was I had finished. And so the finish area, like most marathons, yeah. which you'll be familiar with, you sort of, you know, you run through the finish line, and then they kind of like herd you around a, a certain kind of path. Right. Um, I was attempting to circumvent that path because we were staying with friends who actually lived on Boylston Street, okay. um, about about two blocks from the finish line. So right. I had just run. It was awesome. it was like the best place to. Stay. I mean, they would have a marathon party every year. They would open the front windows of their apartment. Um, and hang out and watch. And, you know, I'd given my husband a high five, like two blocks before the finish. And then, so I was trying to like, kind of do a hairpin turn and go back across the finish line the other way to get right. back to their apartment. And so I was walking back toward the finish line when the first bomb went. Oh and I think it was maybe like half a block away, um, maybe a block away. And no one knew what it was like. Oh, did a transformer explode? Like it just was right. kind of like this confusion and I remember kind of standing in this doorway with a few other people being like, well, should we try to go help? Like, is there yeah. anything that we should be doing here? And then when the second one went off was when I feel like sort of panic took hold of the right. crowd that was there. Um, and so obviously I turned around and started going the other direction. Um, I had taken off my shoes for some reason at that point. <laughs> So I was in I mean, my socks. That's, not like a weird, that's actually not a weird thing I feel for you to say, having run a marathon. Like, I remember, like, the oranges felt like they were 20 pounds each that they give you, and then like, you just wanted to get your shoes off. So, like, yeah. yeah. I'm sure there was blood on my feet somewhere. I don't, I, but I just remember being in my socks and walking, and uh, I didn't have, I wasn't running with a phone. This was 10 years ago. So it was, I'm sure I had a cell phone, like a smartphone at that point, but it was kind of before it became a thing that we took everywhere with us. Right. And so I had no way of communicating with anyone that I was okay. I didn't know if they were okay. I'm like wandering around back bay in my socks. And finally, um, some people were like inviting people into their apartment. And I was able to get on Facebook and send a message that I was okay. And uh, heard through a third party that my, my husband and our friends were all okay. Although the bomb blew out the front windows of their apartment and my husband had literally been leaning up against the trash can that the other bomb was in when I high-fived him. Yeah, it was wild. Um, wow. Yeah, really, really a unforgettable, not in a good way experience. Oh my um, gosh, I'm so sorry that happened. That's, um, that's so scary. Uh, 
Yeah, it was, um, it was surreal. I remember all of my stuff, like my clothes, my laptop computer, my phone and everything were in the, my friend's apartment because we had been staying there with them. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't get any of that. Um, and so I had to fly home, you know, in like a borrowed pair of sweats and I didn't have my ID. And so when you don't have your ID, when you fly, like there's a way to do it, but they ask you all of these crazy, weird questions from some sort of like intense background check. Um, yeah, my friends had to like mail my stuff back a couple weeks later when they finally let them back into their apartment because it was considered part of the crime scene. Oh, wow. Um, I, like, yeah. I guess I never would have thought it would be like extended out to, I, I guess, I mean, it makes total sense that you say it, but um, I never would have thought that would be like a consequence of the runners, essentially. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, it was wild. I mean, obviously thankful that I was not physically hurt right. and feel awful for the people that were. Um, but, yeah, mentally, I'm sure it was very, so did you, yeah. So, I mean, you said, was that your last like run that you ever, that you like event that you ever did or did you, how do you feel about doing events after that? But it doesn't, I, I would do a bigger event. I mean, I've done like five K's right. more local type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, I think that's more me avoiding the distance rather than avoiding the crowds. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I would maybe do a half marathon, like a, a big one at some point. I don't think that I would be nervous about it okay. this many years on. Well, that was, thank you for telling that. And yes. Um, <laughs> Lovely little sidebar. <laughs> little sidebar that I, oh my gosh. Um, so who's your favorite Peloton instructor? <laughs> um. Yeah. So, okay. So you run, you do Peloton, but how do you stay motivated for it all? Well, I feel like the motivation is built in on the Peloton. I am a total sucker for whatever that psychology is of giving you the little points for things that you do. So I've got my annual challenge and it's like, you can see the little tracker fill up. Uh, I do find that very motivating. Uh, And it also just my day goes better if I exercise. And that was something that really uh, came into focus during, I keep saying COVID. I don't want to keep talking about COVID throughout the whole podcast, no. but because um, I went through a period where I wasn't working out and right. um, I really noticed there was a lot else also going on at that time. But um, once I picked the habit back up again, I noticed it made a real difference in just my attitude. Yeah, for sure. So do you just do the spinning or, or do you do all of the... Um... Like, do you do the lifting at all with the Peloton or you're just strictly on the bike? I always um, we actually just got the guide. So I mostly do the bike, okay. um, but the guide is pretty cool. Like I was, a little, again, yeah. I was a little bit skeptical. Like, is this really going right. to be like worth this price? <laughs> but it gives you the little points. You do your reps and your little circle fills up and it's like, yeah. yes, I'm awesome. Gold star. <laughs> it is. It is so elementary, but like it, that is for me too. It's like, oh, with the Apple watch, I got to get my rings closed. And then the same thing with the Peloton. It's like, okay, how many till this milestone? How many till that milestone? Um, so it is something obviously in psychology. At all. Yeah. They, they are onto it, whatever it is. Um, what do you wish you learned earlier in life about your fitness and nutritional health? Um, I wish that I had, I guess a little bit more like love for my body. 
and what it could do. Um, when I was younger, I feel like being a competitive runner, I feel like I was always chasing the next thing. Um, mm -hmm. it was never enough to just go out and move and mm -hmm. enjoy the movement. It always had to be, well, I'm training for this race, so I need to run 45 miles this week. And mm -hmm. it was very regimented. I wish that I had um, spent more time just enjoying the, the relatively high level of fitness that I had at that time right. in, a, in a less regimented way. Um, and hard, a lot yeah. of people, I feel like in a lot of ways, I probably peaked at like age 18 or 19 when it comes to how fast I can run. Right. And so I, I, I wish that I had not been so down on myself about that. Of course, yeah. I'm going to get slower as I get older. Um, and that's not true for a lot. I know a lot of women who um, have gotten faster in their 40s. Uh, I'm not one of them, but <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that that is so hard because and I was I'm kind of I guess like the opposite of you, whereas I never liked just going out for a run until I actually graduated college because I was always similar. Like I was always afraid that I'm not fast enough. I don't have a seven minute mile. I don't have an eight minute mile. I barely even have a nine minute mile. And um, once I kind of learned about distance running and I'm like, oh, I can just like go run for as long as I want. And that could be my goal as opposed to a time. Um, it kind of helped me a lot, but I totally get that. That's, it's really hard um, mentally, I feel like. To... Yeah, we are very hard on ourselves. I wish we were not so hard on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, and then can you talk about the relationship between mental health and physical fitness for you? I know you said that it gives you happiness, but is there anything else specifically? Yeah. Um... I feel like every therapist I've ever had has always given that kind of speech about like, well, you know, because, you know, I, I, like I suffer from anxiety and depression. That's something that I've battled my whole postpartum, not really postpartum anymore. My, my daughter's nine, but uh, it's been a battle throughout those nine years and uh, always getting that line of like, well, exercises really will help with this. And I always kind of rolled my eyes, but it's really true. Like it does help. And yeah. I kind of hate, hate that it's true because sometimes when I'm really in a, a bad place, mental health wise, the last thing I want to do is get up and go mm -hmm. for a run. Um, but that's where I feel like that being gentler with ourselves comes into play because sometimes maybe it isn't a run. Maybe it's just mm -hmm. a walk. Right. Maybe it's a 20 minute easy walk and, and, and it doesn't have to be, I'm out there killing myself and hitting PRs in order to, to get that mental health boost. Like it's just movement. Right. Fresh air. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It is so hard because, you know, for someone who like yourself, who is so you're like used to this level of movement. And then it's like going for a walk. That's not, that's not like a workout. And, and it is when you think about it, like for your mind and your whole body, it is giving you, more than you going out and doing, you know, a, a tough workout, essentially. Yeah, walking is awesome. I feel like that is that is me in my 40s right now. I yeah, yeah. I have realized that walking is awesome. I wish I had. That's another thing I wish I had realized when I was younger. <laughs> well, Peloton has awesome outdoor walks. I That's what I did postpartum a lot with um, just to make myself feel as though I was like working out and I would put on the outdoor walks while I was walking the babies and like you know the music's going you have the instructors talking and it's like you feel like you're getting more 
I mean, you are getting a lot, but like you feel like you're getting, um, you know, a good, good, better workout. I don't know. I, don't know I do the outdoor walk I, sometimes. I have to say, I always skip it though when they're like, "Do your high knees," and oh, you're yeah, like, I'm like, I'm not, <laughs> not happening in the public park. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's transition into parenthood. So you have one child. Um, I have a two. I have a, okay. a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. Okay. And what were you least prepared for in parenthood? I think I thought I would have a lot more influence and control than I actually do. Yeah. Um, I think I remember being pregnant and reading all of the, the, the parenting books um, uh-huh. on dealing with having an infant, but then also just thinking that I could educate my way into being a good parent and Mm -hmm. guaranteeing some sort of good outcome for my kids. And I think the realization that they are their own people first and foremost, and of course being a good conscientious parent is important, but like (laughs) they're kind of going to do what they're going to do and really relinquish some of that expectation of control was something that uh, was um, unexpected and, and challenging I know that at my kids' school, they always use this analogy of it's like planting a seed versus building a house or something. I think I might be okay. mixing metaphors there, no. but um, it's like, okay, you can, you plant the seed and then you can do your best to nourish it versus right. trying to construct something that you have in your mind of what you think yeah. your kid should be or what they should be doing. So yeah, I've had to have it chill out a little bit. I think as a lot of us have. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Um, what's your favorite thing to do with your kids? Oh, they are. I know you said your kids are younger, right? They're babies. Oh, so you have this to look forward to. My kids right now, I feel are at the absolute best ages, um, for just for everything for travel. Um, I'm not wiping butts anymore. (laughs) Um, they can like carry their own stuff when we travel and go do adventures. Like we can go on a hike, um, Yesterday, uh, we went out kayaking, like me in a kayak, and then each of my kids in a kayak. And my daughter reminded me that last year when we had come to the lake, um, I wouldn't let them go on their own because I was like, oh, no, you're not going to be able to control the kayak and you're too little and what. Right. And realizing, oh, well, I'm I'm totally comfortable with that now. They're they're capable people. Yeah. And it's just, it's very fun. So yeah, we, we've been doing a lot of travel. Um, we love board games. We're kind of a nerdy family. Uh, my son especially is seven and would spend all day just like playing um, Sellers of Catan and Monopoly and like every Nothing board game. Uh, so we do that a lot too. That's so fun. I, I, I've enjoyed, not that I'm like much into parenthood, but I feel like once my son, my youngest turned one, like I know it's only really been a few weeks, but I feel like it got me over this like weird hump of like something clicked. They're starting to play together more. I don't know the, the word independence is something that like, I can talk about for a two and a half and one year old, but I'm just so excited to see how much when they get to that age that they'll be able to do on their own because they're already starting. I never thought that I would be able to breathe by myself, let alone now I'm like, oh, they, okay, they can play a little bit in the other room. So to be at where you're at is 
it's exciting to know. It's life changing, man. When you when you have when you stop worrying constantly that they're gonna kill themselves, it's yeah. life changing. <laughs> I know it's crazy. Um, so what do you think your parenting style is? Um, oh gosh, I wish you could. Your kids watch Bluey. Have you watched Bluey? They, yes, Bluey is awesome. Um, we love. So I feel like I want to be the dad on Bluey, but I'm not the dad on Bluey. I feel like yeah. I'm maybe like the mom on Bluey. I'm in there sometimes doing yeah. the silly thing, but also I'm in the corner kind of, my, my husband will, will step in and be the, yeah. be the Bluey dad. And I'm kind of Aww. in the background being the Bluey mom, but, but yeah, no, I mean, and it gets, it, my parenting style, I feel like has changed as I've gotten older. Right. Um, it's, I've always wanted to be the type of parent that gives my kids a lot of independence and mm-hmm. you know lets them make mistakes and um and kind of uh have autonomy uh but that is it's hard to do when they're you know two and yeah. you're worried that they're going to split their head open falling down from the ridiculous thing that they've climbed up um and it's it's gotten a little bit more easy to embrace that as they've gotten older and just you know, trust that they can make good decisions and I try to be hands off when I can. <laughs> right. And so I'm a high school health and phys ed teacher. So I feel as though like my daily life is like organized chaos and kids doing things and pushing boundaries of like, you know, what they can. And I, I do feel like that's an advantage for me as, as a parent, because a lot of stuff I'm like comfortable with them. Um, climbing things or like doing certain because I think I'm just so numb to it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> so it is interesting how it's not really the norm I'm finding out to just be very like laid back with like them climbing random things. <laughs> as, you know, yeah. Like, I imagine you've seen your share of bad decisions in your, yeah, in your work I life. <laughs> I'm like, I think this is okay for them to do. Um, but we also have this really cool little pickler thing. I think they're called they're like these wooden things. I never saw them until I had kids and it helps them with climbing. Um, but maybe like two feet tall, but, um, building the confidence is something that I see when we go to a playground or something. Um, that is nice for my my daughter to do. Yeah. (laughs) He's not at that yet. (laughs) Um, and what's one piece of advice that you would give other parents? Oh gosh. I feel like giving parenting advice is a lot like giving writing advice in that, when I try to do it, it's hard because it's some things are going to work for someone and they're not going to work for someone else. Uh, but, and I hated so much of the advice that I got when my kid, like when I was pregnant uh, and my, my, my daughter in particular, my nine-year-old was such a terrible sleeper and people would say, Oh, sleep when the baby sleeps. And I just wanted to sock them in the face because it's like, are you coming over to do my dishes and like clean up this mess that's here? Um, But yeah, now that they're older again, it's like a little bit more perspective. Um, I do think it's important to let them them make their mistakes in a safe way and Mm -hmm. and let them them be their own people, Um, which is harder to do when they're little, but it gets easier when they get bigger. I always say, like, when I entered parenthood, and I've said this, said this multiple times, I feel like, on this podcast, is that there is apparently this, like, rule book that like, I don't know who made it up, but they're like, oh, you have to do this, and you have to do that. And like you were saying with sleeping, sleep when the baby sleeps, do this, or or the baby will be, and it's like, but I don't, that doesn't work for me, and mm-hmm. I want to make my own rule book, and that's something that I really strive for, where it's like, I don't want to 
no, what, what you did 30 years ago with your kids is not what's going to work for me today with my kid and not with my family dynamic either. So, um, yeah, I love that, you know, you're just look at the perspective, but I do think that old moms prior to us make the world go around as well. Cause I also wouldn't have survived without the, uh, <laughs> the support of mothers prior to me having kids. Which is yeah, awesome. absolutely. Um, all right, so let's get into the remarkably bright creatures. Okay. Share. All right, tell us uh, <laughs> a little bit about the book to start off with, and then I'll get into some more detailed questions. Well, I always say it's a book about an octopus, but it's not really a book about an octopus. Um, you know, and like you mentioned earlier, that it's not necessarily a book that you might pick up off of the shelf knowing that it's about an octopus. I hear that a lot from people um, who have read the book and really liked it, but they don't normally read, you know, fantasy or speculative fiction. Um, and, you know, it's not really that. Like, it's a book about people that are dealing with um, grief and trauma and just kind of ordinary people who are trying to be a better version of themselves. And it just happens to be narrated by an octopus in part. So um, I always told, you know, it's, it, it is not really a book about an octopus. And um, I think m most people have said after the first chapter, when Marcellus the octopus is sort of narrating, you almost kind of forget that it's an octopus um, right. yeah. because he's just this narrator that's kind of um, has a perspective, uh, right. just one, one perspective of many in the story. So. Um, yeah, I, uh, I get asked about the origin story a lot. Yes. Um, you know, just kind of like, why, like, why would anyone? Yeah. That was going to be my next question. Like, what's your inspiration behind it? How, why, what made you? Yeah. You know? So it, uh, the octopus character originally came from sort of this YouTube rabbit hole, actually, that I went down. Um, I had, this was many years ago at this point. I had just started trying to write fiction and uh, was just sort of like constantly in this headspace of thinking of characters and what mm -hmm. can be a character and like almost like hunting for characters in the wild. And I was just on my laptop wasting time as one does and ended up on some sort of algorithm that took me down octopus videos one afternoon. And I remember just thinking that that would be a fun character. Um, you know, I've always been the type of person that kind of like, you know, uh, I will talk to my cats and then make them talk back. You know, I'm kind of <laughs> always imagining what what they would be saying if they could talk. So it, for me, it wasn't that much of a stretch to say, well, here's this video of an octopus who's like an, a known escape artist, you know, who's <laughs> trying to get out. Like what, you know, what's the what's the narration that is behind it? And, you know, with octopuses in particular, and, you know, even on a video, you, you can kind of feel this you know, the way that their eyes are, they kind of, um, they just seem to be more all seeing than other animals. There's, right. there's emotion behind their eyes, there's connection there. Um, so that sort of made it easy to envision, you know, not only this voice, but this, you know, just attempt at communication um, the other way through the tank, you know, rather right. than a person standing outside talking to the octopus, which I have done, you have the <laughs> octopus sort of communicating back um, from the inside. That's awesome. Um, so in the audio version, his voice is, you know, is such a staple of it. Like, did you envision what it came out to be or how did you, like, how did you go about figuring out for the audio, um, 
Oh my god. Well, Michael Yuri is so he's so perfect. Yeah, he, I mean, um, yeah, like, that's what I'm, I'm it's like, just I so perfect. Even, you interview people for that's like I guess through like is that how it works? Like um, sort of. So um, a lot of that stuff, and, and you know, you probably know this, and, and maybe your listeners do, but a lot of that sort of stuff, like the audiobook narration, even things like the cover and the title, are actually the publisher's. Mm-hmm call in a traditional publishing agreement. So like that's their under, you know, their power to decide those things. Um, But my publisher is awesome. I think most publishers do want their authors to be happy. Uh, So it was a collaborative process. You know, they gave me a few names of people who they thought would be a good fit for each of the two parts in the audiobook, and just said, Hey, listen to samples of their prior work. And then uh, we'll like rank them in order from your favorite to least favorite. And then we'll just go in that order um, when we go reach out to them and see if they would be willing to, to do this. And I got really lucky that uh, Marin Ireland and Michael Urie were top of the list <laughs> on both yeah. counts. And yeah, um, I was just thrilled with how it came out. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So um, the book does like blur the boundaries between reality and fiction. Did you find challenges while navigating this line? How did you kind of, because it is, I mean, I felt like this could be real, you know, a real story, but then you're like, but there's an octopus. That's the me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I definitely was aware of that line, like very aware of that line yeah. when I was writing it, even, even on the first draft, uh, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how far to push, you know, the Marcellus character, um, yeah. with what he was doing and wasn't doing. Uh, the, the line for me that was always, I think, pretty clear, even, even from the beginning, was the things that he's doing physically are possible. Right, um, yeah, I totally you know, it, it is possible for an octopus to escape through something that um, is the size of, they have a little beak that's kind of hard cartilage on their underside, and that's the only solid thing in their body. So if that beak can fit through an opening, that octopus can fit through that opening. Um, So, you know, things like that. I, I, you know, did a lot of just like internet research basically to figure out what was possible. And so if he's doing it physically, it's possible. All of the stuff that's happening in his head obviously is pure fiction. As far as we don't, as far as we know, um, you know, octopuses don't have kind of an inner, an inner monologue like humans do. Maybe they do, you know, we don't know. I think right. there's evidence that they have, you know, they dream, they do a lot of things that, you know, that humans do, right. but, um, but we just don't know. So, um, yeah, that was kind of where I took liberties with that, but, but I really tried to keep the physical, his physical actions possible. Yeah. That's what I was also going to ask. Like, did you have anybody like a marine biologist or anything like look at the book and say like, this is not, you know, or was it just you? <laughs> I did. Yes. And they said almost exactly that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to several of the things that I had tried to put in there. Okay. Um, I remember one of that, I, I had Marcellus commenting on the colors of things and I've, I've got a friend who's, you know, does marine biology and she was like, yeah, no, we don't think that they can see color. We don't okay. know, but yeah. we think it's more like a, you know, a cat or a dog where they just see a different range okay. of colors than humans. You know, they're not going to be commenting on something being neon green. Like they wouldn't have that right. in their experience. Um, and then I had, um, there were a couple 
couple places where I'd pushed it too far. Like at one point I had Marcellus the octopus making photocopies. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> look, no, no, not that doesn't work. Um, yeah. So yes, I did. I did have some help there. Um, you know, I always thought I would finish a draft of my novel and then, you know, because I live in Chicago, take take it to the Shed Aquarium and say, hey, can I come meet your octopus? But given that so much, I mean, it was during 2020 at that point, yeah. um, you know, it, it was just never, it didn't happen before I sent, turned the book in, but but I have yeah. since got to meet an octopus. So that was Well, fun. yeah, it's such a great, <laughs> and, and I think that is so important. I know I said it, everything the octopus does, you can imagine it doing it. So, and it, it makes it more real because you're like, you want to imagine that the octopus that you go see at the aquarium is giving you that same thought process that Marcellus is. Um, so I think in one of the interviews that I read, you mentioned that the book reflects like the power of empathy. How did you, like, can you explain how you explored that in your story? Yeah, I, mean, I think all fiction really is, when we read fiction, we're sort of um, working our empathy muscle. Right. Like any anytime you put yourself in someone else's shoes, um, you know, a character that might be very different from you or have a different perspective. I just, you know, I think, um, it, you know, it's, an, it's, it's one of the important things about reading fiction, any type of fiction, you know, whether it's, you know, very serious literary fiction or like, you know, whatever, beach read fiction. Like, right. I think all of that just kind of, um, you know, helps us work that empathy muscle. And I think, you know, the more different a character is from you, sort of the more you have to stretch your own perspectives in order to fit that character. And you know, octopus is pretty different from all of us. So yeah, um, I, <laughs> I love that. Um, so how do you hope that your novel will impact readers and encourage them to think differently about the natural world and their place in it? I think it's, you know, I don't, this is not explicitly in the book, but I definitely had the intention when I was writing it that I wanted people to feel some sort of tension about, mm -hmm. about Marcellus being in captivity, about maybe, you know, captivity in general as a concept. Um, not that it is bad or good um, because I mean, I love going to aquariums and zoos. Like I would be a total hypocrite if I were to sit here and right. say, you know, oh, this is all bad. Um, it's been a very big part of my, you know, enjoyment of, of life is being able to connect with animals in those um, settings where they're in captivity. But, you know, at the same time, there is like a, you know, a hesitancy there or a, a tension with the, the ethics of it. You know, is mm -hmm. this okay? Um, and so I just, I wanted readers to kind of feel that tension and just, just be aware of it. And, you know, maybe it causes people to kind of explore what their thoughts are on that, where the line is. Um, you know, I don't have an answer, but, you know, I was hoping to raise the question a little bit in like a non, non preachy way, just right. a, you know, let's just be aware of this way. Right. I agree. And I think you did also did a great job with that because it is, you know, it did make you think a lot. You're like, you felt bad for him being in captivity. And um, that was something that, you know, was, it, it, brought about the whole time like his lifespan being the in there and you don't think about that when you go visit an aquarium or and and that definitely brought it up in such a good way yeah um, you know it's um it's always a tension too between um you know the, the educational aspect of it right. and the ethical aspect of it yeah. like 
I remember um, I was at a book event in Colorado and <laughs> it, we went for a hike that morning up in Rocky Mountain National Park, which was not something I had on my um, book tour <laughs> agenda, but the, it was a really lovely people that were sort of hosting the event. They're like, oh yeah, let's go up in the morning and go hiking. And it was like snowing and hailing. It was wild. But anyway, I remember having this conversation about the, the crowds in the national parks, mm-hmm. um, which have gotten, I think, even bigger since, you know, the pandemic the last couple of years yeah. just as really, and, you know, where do you draw that line of like, we want more access to, to national parks for people, you know, particularly people from communities who haven't historically um, right. had that access. And, but at the same time, there's just too many people coming here. So, you know, how do you balance the, sort of the exposure and, and the education with the, you know, need to not have everything be like trampled on and driven through. And yeah. I feel like it's very, it was very similar to like, okay, well, you know, if we, if we don't have these aquariums and zoos, then you end up with generations of people who don't have that connection and then don't right. care. So it's like, yeah, I don't know where the line is. Yeah, I agree. And I, we've been lucky to visit some, a lot of national parks and that was it's first when the first national park that or when we went to um i'm trying to think maybe it was yosemite um or yellowstone one of them but there's like you know the bear signs everywhere like stay away from bears you know don't get too close to bears don't and it took me like a couple days to realize like you're not at a zoo you're you're in the wild and this is and it did give me such a a better like perspective I guess of kind of like you were saying like yeah we need to go see this stuff but also like this is I understand when someone says this is their home but we you don't think about that when you're entering the park kind of like oh yeah I'm going to you know whatever but yeah I'm on vacation (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) definitely an interesting perspective um can you share any memorable feedback or responses that you received from readers for from the book Oh my gosh. Um, one of my favorite, favorite moments. And this was very, very, this was like the week after the book had been published. I was going around and signing stock at all of the Barnes and Nobles by my house. And, uh, so I was at this customer service counter signing books and someone came in looking for my book and, um, she wanted it for her mom who was in her nineties and I think didn't read that much anymore, but she had heard about this book and thought that she would like it. And so I was able to like personalize it for her. It was for Mother's Day. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I think I had maybe been holding back some emotion because I had a total crying in Barnes and Noble moment that day. Like I was crying. The, the uh, customer was crying. The bookseller was crying. <laughs> we were all just having this moment. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's been one of the most special things for me um, is hearing about like people sharing the book across generations, um, you know, maybe older people who who don't read as much getting back into reading because of this. Um, you know, when I was writing it, I didn't really think much about that. Of course, there is there's a range of um, ages in the uh, main characters, but it really has had like a lot of cross generational appeal, which I think is is really cool. Yeah, I can definitely see that. There's all, yeah, and you did, again, a great job with that, with the generational um, aspect. Um, so you've been mentioned in a lot of prestigious publications, Glamour, Marie Claire, Parade, Good Housekeeping, um, and as one of the top books of 2022. That's an incredible accomplishment. 
So how do you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the imposter syndrome, like how do you deal with that? How, how has that given you confidence? Like what, um, how is it celebrated amongst all of it? <laughs> Tell me oh, about Well, the can of house wine bubbles. <laughs> no, we've been through a lot of those. No, I mean, I look, I think every accomplishment is, is always in some ways a combination of luck and hard work. And so, you know, yes, I, I worked really hard to write this book and, you know, poured a lot of myself into it, particularly at a time when I didn't have a very full cup to pour from. And so I'm yeah. very proud of that. But um, I absolutely have to acknowledge that there's been a lot of luck along the way. Um, I think one of the biggest strokes of luck was just that octopuses were kind of having a moment at the time when I was submitting my manuscript to agents. Uh, this was like fall of 2020 and the documentary, my octopus teacher had just come out and okay. it was like we were in yeah. this pandemic era where I feel like everyone was watching the same things yeah. all at the same time. Like pop culture was just like very concentrated in a, yeah. in a way during that time. So I remember my octopus teacher was everywhere and Forgot, you know, at yeah. first when I heard about it, I was, t I, you know, I remember hearing the trailer on Netflix and being just terrified that someone had like written my book or, you know, made a movie <laughs> out of my yeah. story. Um, not that it's mine, but you know, it's, yeah, but, no, yeah. um, but it ended up being just, I mean, it's a fantastic documentary. I think it really, um, pushed octopuses to sort of the front of pop culture was just amazing timing with, with my book coming out. And so I think, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's all luck. I didn't plan any of that. Like that was just, that was just luck. So, luck. um, yeah. there's been some luck along the way. <laughs> um, so to get into more of the specifics of some of the characters as Tobit, she's embarking on a transformative journey. Like she embarks on a journey. Um, can you elaborate on her pivotal moments or experiences that shape her character throughout the story? Yeah. So, um, you know, her, her journey is basically that she's kind of stuck and yeah. she needs to get herself unstuck. You know, that's kind of all yeah. of the characters have, have yeah. that journey in one way or another. Um, you know, it's, in some ways it's not really like a big journey. It's a very, right. um, a, a very like kind of basic human, you know, just kind of like mm -hmm. small problems <laughs> that, right. that we all have, you know, she is very set in her ways. Um, she has a very difficult time accepting help from her community. Mm -hmm. Um, and she has a very hard time sort of allowing herself to be vulnerable. Um, mm -hmm. and it's funny because when I was writing the character of Tova, I really, um, <laughs> actually all of the characters, I, I was really worried that, and I think all authors worry about this to some extent. It's like, I'm worried that people are going to read this book and see right through me. Like they're going to see me, you know, yeah. they're going to think it's autobiographical. And so <laughs> for some reason, I thought that I was going to get around that by just making right. all of the characters, different ages, different genders, you know, just yeah. so obviously not me. Like there's no 40 year old woman in this book. It's all these right. other people. <laughs> but Everybody you know, the things that Tova struggles with are like the very same things that I struggle with. So it's like, I was just not really, was not successful at cheating, <laughs> cheating yeah. around that, that problem. But um, yeah, she really struggles with uh, letting, letting people in. She kind of keeps everyone yeah. at arm's length. And uh, so she has to learn to, to get over that. 
did I read that you had some of her based on your grandmother? Did you, is that, yeah. Yeah. Um, she, on that a little bit? The, there, there's one thing that I stole directly from my grandmother's <laughs> life for the book. Uh, and that was, uh, Tova's friend group, the Nitwits. Um, oh, cool. my, my grandmother had a group called the Nitwits and, um, my grandma and I were really, really close. I lived next door to her when I was growing up and, uh, I was an only child. So I spent a lot of time with her, you know, her house was kind of my house. Her back door was always open. You know, I was always in and out. And I remember being at her house when, when the Nitwits were, were at her house meeting. And I think I just soaked some of that up. And I just thought it was such a great name for, for a group yeah. of women. I just was like, I'm just yeah. going to use it. Um, but yeah, my grandmother, like Tova, was um, from Sweden, was um, like just kind of like tiny and like drank a lot of coffee and was like incredibly busy and strong and tough. Um, you know, also like very, very, very sweet and kind, but like right. very, very stoic and hardworking. So there's a lot of like descriptions and vivid imagery in throughout the book. Like, do you have a favorite passage or scene from the book that captures that atmosphere being your favorite? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So it's funny. I feel like I, <laughs> when I draft, I write a lot of like over the top description. Yeah. I, I feel like I use description as a way of avoiding dealing with the plot. <laughs> so right. like, I'll be writing a scene and it's just like, we're talking about the trees and the sky right. and the water. And it's just like, um, so I had to peel a lot of that back, obviously. Um, okay. So as I mentioned before, the way that I found out about this book was through the Peloton Mom book club. So I asked um, on a forum, like if anybody had any questions, to ask you specifically, and I pulled a few from them, the top five that I found. Um, well, and the first one is not really a question, but I had to put it in there because <laughs> it was also my favorite part of the book. Um, when Marcella says day 1361 of my captivity, let's cut the shit, shall we? And um, that was just such a, I, I think I like laughed out loud when that part came. Why did you put that in? Was that just like a random, thing that you did I, I just feel like it was so important to have in there and just like so funny yeah I mean Not I think it just really like cuts through his his self-importance <laughs> right yeah. um the the fun thing about writing Marcella I mean there was a lot of fun things about writing Marcellus yeah um I guess one of the more interesting things about writing him versus the other characters is that like because he's first person point of view you only ever see his view of himself, mm -hmm. um, which is very like, you know, self-important and right. kind of grand. And, mm -hmm. you know, at that point in the book, you know, Marcellus, even though he's sort of just a narrator, he does have a character arc as well. Oh yeah. And, you know, that was sort of the point in the book where I'm like, okay, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to let him drop that guard <laughs> and just be, yeah. You know, I keep stopping myself from saying and be fully human <laughs> because he is <laughs> not, but yeah. and be fully present and stop trying to put on airs. Um, yeah. And it was, yeah, it was fun to write. It was, it was fun to let him do that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. Um, so uh, one of the questions was, do you have an octopus tattoo or have you considered it in memory of the book? Um, I have considered it. I'm actually thinking of a tattoo that I might get in memory of the book, but it's not of an octopus. 
Um, okay. And I'm not going to say what it is. Okay. I'll, I'll post it on my Instagram if I ever go through with it. Um, but yeah, you know, I, um, I, the biggest thing is I'm trying to figure out where to put it. Cause I don't right. like, I'm not, I'm not tattooed. So it's like, I feel like if you get one tattoo, that's weird. It like just looks, so maybe I need <laughs> two. I don't know. <laughs> well, I hope you find a good spot for it. <laughs> I have seen a lot of really amazing octopus tattoos and like talking about things, you know, interactions with readers that have left my jaw on the floor. Um, like that's happened a few times where at book events, people are like, Oh, look, I, you know, they pull up their sleeve and it's like, it's Marcellus. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah, it looks beautiful. <laughs> I made a character that made you get a tattoo. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I wish I like, I love the way tattoos look. I have, I have two, but they're like very small. And I'm like, I wish I could be the one with like a sleeve of all these beautiful art pieces of art, but I'm too scared. <laughs> I have I have one on my back. It's a, a tiny little star that I got when okay. I was 18. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we all. <laughs> I think it looks kind of like a mole now. It was so low quality to begin with, and it's faded out over time. It's just like a splotch. Looks like a yeah. birthmark. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you'll get a a, a new one. I guess. Um, if this became a movie, who would you like to see cast in the main role? Oh gosh, this is always a hard question. Um, not because it would be hard to cast it, but because we actually have sold the film option. Oh my um, gosh. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't know how much you know about that process, but like it's- I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, so the, the option is like the first step. Um, okay. And so they, they buy the option and they basically buy the right to develop it. Okay. And a lot of books get optioned, but never developed right. or never, you know, they don't ever see it through. So like, it really is, it's a, it's a very tall ladder and, and selling the option is just like the first step, but it's super exciting to be on that step. Yeah, um, that's you know, obviously with the writer's strike going on right now, it's nothing is happening right at this moment. Um, mm -hmm. But they, there has been some movement on it. But now I don't want to say who I would cast because there have been some <laughs> talks of people who are... Okay potentially, you know, going to be interested or attached. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I, you know, it's so much funny how much of this stuff, like, um, you know, I, I feel like the amateur in the room, I just, I don't know what I'm allowed to say right. or not yeah, say. No, so, so I just say nothing. Yeah, you're like, okay, we got that. Well, hopefully it will become a film. Um, one day. I know someone else commented, of course, they said like Morgan Freeman as Marcellus was like, oh. suggestions, which could be like, um, that would be amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, obviously that's a no brainer. <laughs> he would um, definitely be a great one. Um, uh, the next question was, have you given any thoughts of fleshing out Daphne's life story? You know, I, so I have actually in the draft that I sent to my agent when I was, you know, querying the manuscript when it was, mm -hmm. you know, at the early stages of that, um, did have more about Daphne in the book. There were actually a few chapters that were from her perspective. Um, and we ended up cutting them. My agent made me cut them, <laughs> which, which was the right call. But at the time I was like, <laughs> um, you know, it's hard. She's, I think my agent and my editor both really just felt it was better to kind of have her off the page because her, mm -hmm. her story is so complicated. Um, right. and it's sort of like you either need to fully tell that story and give it the treatment that it mm -hmm. deserves, 
or just keep it off the page and let it be more vague. So we opted to keep it off the page and let it be more vague. Um, I, I think it would be interesting to explore her story more. I worry a little bit that I just don't have the the perspective to write that character well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been some folks in my extended family that have dealt with addiction and I've sort of watched it um, mm-hmm. go down from afar, but it's not something that I have personal experience with. And I'm just not sure that I would, would do it well, I guess. Yeah. Um, but in my mind, you know, I always think of my characters sort of like, where are they now? Um, yeah. You know, in my mind, Daphne, I have hope for her. Um, you know, she's not that old. Uh, you know, she has life in front of her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in my mind, hopefully she she gets it together. And um, yeah. Okay, and then the last one, um, this um, person had said, Marcellus's observation of humans and the human world were one of the best parts of the novel. What were your favorite Marcellus observations and are there any good ones that didn't make them? Oh gosh. Um, yeah. So there's kind of a lot of Marcellus that ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I, when I was having writer's block, that was my default was if I didn't know what else to write that day, I would just say, well, what's Marcellus up to? And just, you know, he could kind of like go on a rant about almost anything. (laughs) Um, but, and I had a few more of those in the book, uh, that ended up getting cut. You know, my editor, was kind of like, what is the purpose of this? You know, she'd like mark it up, like, you know, this doesn't move. She's like, this is fun, but like every one of these needs to like move the story forward in some way. You can't just have this octopus sitting here, you know, go to have, having a hot take about something that has nothing to do with, with the story itself. <laughs> I know, why not? Um, so I, you know, a few of them, I was able to sort of adjust them and like, you know, kind of retrofit in some little right. factoid or something. I was like, okay, now this is relevant to the plot um, in order to justify keeping them. Uh, but there's one point, um, it's funny. So um, Jerry Springer passed away a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, actually, it was the same weekend that I was at giving a book talk. Um, and for that book talk, I ended up reading a deleted scene that I had never read before. I'd never done that in a book talk before and I don't have it with me. Otherwise I would read it now. But um, there was a deleted scene in which uh, Marcellus sneaks out of his tank and Terry had left the TV on in his office and it's a rerun of Jerry Springer. That's oh. funny. <laughs> so, and it tied in, it, it tied in because it was like, he was talking about, you know, you are the father, you are not the father. And Marcellus yeah, is saying, well, I yeah. can see it. It's obvious to me, like, that that, that baby is not related to that daddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's how they, uh, it was, you know, fun. has some relevance to the plot with, you know, being able to tell that two people are related. Um, I love that. But, um, yeah, my editor was just like, eh, do people watch Jerry Springer anymore? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, or if we don't, we did. We know, you know. Um, anyway, that awesome. one that one didn't make it, but... um. <laughs> It was always a fun one in my mind. <laughs> um, so before we wrap up, I'm sure the listeners and I would like to know what's next on your writing journal. Can you share any upcoming projects or ideas you have in store? Yeah, so I'm, I'm plugging my way through uh, novel number two. Okay. <laughs> uh, awesome. It's slow, slow going. Um, okay. I think that a lot of authors like that I've talked to who are much further along their professional journey uh, will say that their second book was their hardest book to write. Um, you know, you just, especially if your first book is successful, 
yeah. you know, you now kind of have a shadow <laughs> that you're yeah. writing under. Um, well, it's a, not a bad thing, but it's just different for me. You know, sure. I find myself really having to, to concentrate, to turn off that part of my brain that wants to constantly ask, well, what are people going to think of this? Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, how, how is this going to be received? And, you know, when I was writing Remarkably Bright, I never really thought that anyone was going to read it. So, uh, you know, there was no, and there's, there's, right. Well, there's a freedom in that, you know, I was just right. kind of, you know, writing it for my own entertainment and, you know, I'll share it with my critique group. And um, so, yeah, I'm really trying to kind of find that headspace again, that like freedom. Um, right. But it's, it's a skill <laughs> that I'm working on. Well, this was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you did, letting us get into the mind of um, all the characters and the book in general, the writing behind it. It's just such a great experience to have you on here. So thank Thanks you. so much for having me. This was a really fun chat. <laughs> yes, it really was. Um, so that's going to bring us to the end of the episode. Again, a heartfelt thank you to Shelby, the brilliant author behind Remarkably Right Creatures, for joining me today and sharing her insights into the world she crafted within the pages of the extraordinary novel. We hope this conversation has left you inspired, pondering the depth of human-animal connections and reflecting on our place within the natural world. Remember to keep your eyes open for those small wonders around you and embrace the power of empathy, just as Toba did in the pages of Remarkably Bright Creatures. <laughs> it's okay. If you haven't done so, make sure to grab a copy of Shelby's stunning novel available at your favorite bookstore and online real, uh, online retailers. It's a literary journey you won't want to miss. You can follow Shelby on Instagram as well at Shelby Van Pelt writes, and I'll add that in the show notes as well. Um, as always, I would love to hear from you, share your thoughts on this episode, your favorite moments, uh, and any questions you may have on my website or my, you can follow me on Instagram at the running wine mom underscore. Thank you again so much, Shelby, for being on this. I really appreciate it. Um, and you can join me next week as I uncork more stories. Until then, keep sipping on life's moments, savoring the words that ignite your imagination and embracing the magic of storytelling. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, you are strong, you are capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Cheers, and I will see you next Tuesday.